What would you do if you were watching a bunch of fitness influencers and people telling you how to work out, how to get in shape, how to you know look better, et cetera, be better performance, and you knew that what they were saying was just complete crap? What would you do? Well, we're going to talk to someone who went through that little moral dilemma today on today's episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body. Starting feet first, you know, those things are your foundation, although we might talk about other body parts first. Uh, but here on this podcast, we break down the propaganda, the mythology, and sometimes the flat lies that you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or hike or play or do yoga or crossfit or whatever it is you like to do and to do that enjoyably and efficiently and effectively did i mention enjoyably that's a trick question of course i did because look if you're not having a good time you're not going to keep doing whatever it is you're doing so find a way to have some fun i'm stephen sashin ceo and co-founder of zero shoes and we call this the movement movement podcast because we're creating a movement we'll talk about that we part of that uh, about natural movement and helping people understand that your body works great if you let it do what it's meant to do. Now, the movement part that involves you, like the spreading the word, is really simple. Go over to our website, www.jointhemovementmovement.com. There's nothing you need to do to join. There's no secret handshake or money involved. You can just find previous episodes of the podcast, all the ways you can find us on social media. And of course, if you're not hearing this podcast from someplace that you like, you'll find other places you can get the podcast. So with that, oh, and look, spreading the word is the key thing. So give us a review and a thumbs up and um, hit the bell icon on YouTube and subscribe and all those things you know what to do. In short, if you want to be part of the tribe, just subscribe. So let us get started. Michael, uh, pleasure having you here. Do me a favor. Tell people who you are and why in God's name you're here. Thank you, Steve. I mean, first, I'm a little disappointed there's not a secret handshake. I mean, that, well, that... We, there's a secret handshake for people on the podcast. You didn't get the email about that? Uh, no, I missed that one. Oh, all right. Mm -hmm. Well, check your spam folder. We'll figure that one out. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, my name is Michael Kamalu. I am the uh, founder of the Dr. Gaines Health and Fitness brand. Um, and I'm here because I have uh, somewhat of a unique take on on fitness, uh, specifically resistance training, but uh, general fitness and, and health as well. And, uh, you know, I, I started the brand after becoming frustrated from what I saw with various fitness influencers online, what I felt was, you know, often just straight made up and uh, things that sound good, but are not correct. And other things that lead to significant injury. So, that's uh, well, hold on. You left out the best part of this story. The best part of the story is this was starting when you were in med school and your wife basically told you, you know, put up or shut up. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah, it was in my first year of medical school at the Mayo Clinic and, and my wife was pretty into, you know, the, the fitness influencer scene on Instagram and YouTube and I'd catch her watching things and I'd tell her, oh, that's that's wrong. Don't listen to that. That'll get you injured. Never watch that, that guy again. And uh, after complaining about how bad everything she was watching was, she said, you know what, why don't you go ahead and do something about it and tell everyone to decide, all right, I'll start, a, I'll start a fitness brand. And how long ago was that? Uh, that was four, yeah, almost four years ago now. Oh, not that long ago. Well, and I'm going to say something about you um, that's semi-personal, just so people have a context for this. When you check out Michael's site, and we'll we may as well drop the hint now, Dr. Gaines, you can give, give him the URL or tell him where to find you on social media. Usually we do this at the end, but this is important for now, so go for it. Yeah, dr-gaines.com. 
That's the website. Uh, the YouTube channel is Dr. Gaines, and then I'm Michael Kamalu on all the other socials. And we'll have all this spelled out for you, and it'll be in the show notes. So one of the things that's very interesting about Michael as a fitness expert slash influencer, for lack of a better term, is when you start out, you know, and you're wearing your doctor's lab coat and you're looking like a normal human being, you, you, you don't look like your average fitness YouTuber, for example, or fitness Instagrammer, because you don't look huge. And then you do something crazy, like take off, you know, the majority of your clothing and everyone goes, oh, shit. OK, I was greatly mistaken. And what's interesting to me about that is your body type. And of course, a lot of this is just genetics 101. But your body type is way, way closer to what normal humans, if I could use that term, have the ability to become than what you see with these guys who are claiming that they are natural and often aren't, or just have mind-blowing genetics, and you will never look like that no matter how much you lift, diet, uh, take whatever drugs you can think of, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is going to be a weird question following that weird intro, which is, how do you feel about that? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, And that's uh, when when people – people have a skewed perspective of what what big is and what is realistic because the you know 99% of the people you look at online youtube and they're they're just huge they they're not natural they're the ones who say they're natural they're lying or they they think because they're not taking this specific subset of steroids, <laughs> they can say they're natural when they're taking all sorts of other anabolics, hormone, uh, you know, supplements, etc. So, yeah, what what somebody can naturally achieve, and of course there is some variability with genetics, but uh, you can tell, you, you can really tell, um, and it's it's unfortunate because that unrealistic perspective also it, i think it prevents many many people from even starting right mm. like well i they go to the gym a week two weeks etc and they they get this idea oh, i'm never gonna look like that guy so why try and then there's also just you know i often when i get people saying oh you should be bigger etc i'm just as big as i want to be i don't i don't want to be any bigger any bigger and you start losing functionality you start losing flexibility it's 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 no longer beneficial really from any health standpoint at that point there's a there's a guy i'm not going to mention him by name but um he's got a very successful uh youtube channel and he's a he's a science-based fitness guy but he's also 100% admitting, yeah, I'm taking a bunch of drugs to do what I'm doing. And he did a really, really interesting interview about uh, the up and downsides of being that big. And there were way more downsides. And he was really, really just wonderfully honest about that um, in a way that, you know, it, no, there's no question it didn't make anyone go, well, I don't want to do it, uh, even though it undeniably should have. Because he was really saying, you know, he saying things like, when you break a sweat, I mean, like a full body sweat while sitting down, that's a problem when you're that big. You know, when you can't get into a car, that's a problem. And, you know, and he was and he wasn't trying to sugarcoat it. But people really they they leave that out. I was really impressed that he was willing to to, to fess up. Conversely, I got a, a an acquaintance who is a former world champion bodybuilder back in the 80s who to this day 
will not admit that he took any performance enhancing supplemental um, things, um, which is hysterical because all of his peers are now on if they're still alive. They're all getting online talking about exactly what they did. Um, So it's fascinating just what people will or won't say. But it's really wonderful that I think you are not uh, someone who is presenting something that is so unrealistic that it either turns people on for reasons that are inappropriate or turns people off for the for the opposite reason, because they think that that's just not even attainable. So you're in a whole different world. Anyway, be that as it may. Um, so, 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 so backing up then to what you were bitching and moaning about and then that led you to starting starting the the your actual business as a fitness person. Um, let's talk about some of those because these are things that people are often doing on a regular basis or think they should be doing on a regular basis and that could be causing problems. So what's your, you know, like Mount Rushmore top four things that you see that makes you want to scream and, you know, run into the gym and throw weights out of people's hands? Yeah. <laughs> are you going to have to limit it to four? But, uh, <laughs> you know, they, uh, the first several that come to mind then, one is uh, no days off, man. It's it's a rally cry, you know, in in the industry, just to show how how mentally tough you are. No days off is a great way to not achieve any gains because, for one, you don't build muscle while you're lifting. You build muscle during the recovery phase. If there is no recovery phase, you're not building muscle, right? Um, and then two, it will inevitably lead to overtraining injuries, which will then prevent you from being able to lift. And, you know, you're, there's a point where more is less, I guess, is, is what I'm saying here. So um, there should absolutely be days off. And there's a lot of different strategies you can use, which I won't dive into now. But just from a general perspective, Yes, you should take days off. And generally, a lot of people work each muscle too often. Mm. Now we're talking specifically for <clears throat> resistance training here, not uh, not cardio. But um, people don't need you don't need to work a muscle as often as people think that uh, you do. And then uh, probably the next one would be lack of variety. People have this you know, this core set of lifts that they do and they just stick to that. What they don't realize, people don't appreciate how complex the human body is, the, the musculoskeletal system in particular. You hear people saying, you know, a contraction is a contraction. It doesn't matter how it happens. Just, you know, it, it, working a, a muscle with one exercise is the same as working in with a different exercise. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. There's a, a principle called region-specific hypertrophy or, or, or non-homogeneous hypertrophy and activation where muscles, they are not activated equally across the muscle length. So set, it can be broken down into even sarcomeres is the you know, functional unit. I don't know. I don't want to get too technical here, but well, you can get technical, and then if I if I feel the urge, I will um, ask you to dumb it down for people who are not that technical. And, I, and dumb it down is a horrible way of putting it. Make it more understandable for people who don't have uh, the un, the the knowledge of uh, biomechanical lingo. Thank you. All right. So um, 
So yeah, yeah. so please explain the sarcomere. Different please. sarcomeres can be activated to different degrees, and they are activated to different degrees based on a variety of factors. There's you know the range of muscle range of motion of muscle being used. There is the angle of resistance. There is whether it's an eccentric or eccentric, depending on how you pronounce it, or concentric or isometric contraction. Those all work different regions of the muscle in different degrees. Um, and then there's whether it's a compound lift or an isolation lift, or as in, is it moving two joints to hit that muscle or just one joint? And there's a whole slew of other factors that all influence which region of a muscle is being used the most. So if you only work each muscle the exact same way each time, in this, for one, that's how people get lumpy, right? They, they, they're big, but they don't really look good. They just look lumpy, right? Because they're using the same exercise every single time. And so they're not getting even balanced muscle growth. And then it also leads to injuries because if you're only strengthening a muscle along, let's say, one line of resistance in life, you know, you don't live life along one angle of resistance, right? Life is dynamic. You're, you're twisting, you're turning. And once that muscle gets placed in you know, a point of stress at an angle that you haven't strengthened, that's when things tear. That's when you get injured. So um, variety is absolutely essential with resistance training and, and think it can be applied to pretty much any type of, of exercise as well. That too much of one thing is generally detrimental. But uh, yeah, does that make sense? It um, does. Let me let me ask you two questions about that last point. One is, given that, well, let's start, start with this one. So let's use an example. So let's talk biceps for the fun of it. So talk about different exercises you could do for biceps. And I, I will add a little caveat or maybe a little teaser that I've noticed, um, at least in the videos that YouTube is recommending that I watch, there's been, there's always in the fitness world, there's like um, things that kind of catch on for a little while and maybe they stick around, maybe they don't. And lately I've just been getting a whole bunch of videos from a whole bunch of fitness guys who are talking about doing uh, doing pull-ups in a particular way or chin-ups in a particular way rather than doing bicep curls because for a number of reasons. Um, so, But that's a bit of a lead-in to let's talk about a few different ideas of what you would do for biceps that are different exercises that have a different effect on that particular muscle group. That's a great one. So I'll, I'll put a caveat here that scientific research is really just getting to the point where we can prove that there's differences in, you know, regional activation within the same muscle. So some of what I will say is more based off of, you know, how, how I've applied the principles and, and, you know, been able to see the results myself, but they haven't been actually proven, you know, in scientific research yet. So I'll start with something that has the biceps performs supination. So, you know, rotating your thumb externally, rotating your forearm so that your palm is up, your bicep does that, right? If you, if you grab your upper arm and then go like this, you will feel your bicep contracting, 
I yeah, mean, so, but, so yeah, for people who are listening, grab your grab, you know, I'll use my left hand. I'm using my left hand, I'm grabbing my right bicep. I'm turning my forearm and wrist palm, well, wrist palm, uh, hand palm up, uh, but not just at the, at the exclusion of the rest of my forearm and definitely feel a contraction in the bicep. Awesome. So bicep is the primary supinator of the forearm. And, but there are two different heads of the biceps, the long head and the short head. And each head performs different uh, ranges of supination. So like if you start with your palm facing down, going from there till your palm is almost completely face up, that is done by the short head of the bicep much more than the long head. Then from almost fully supinated to past the supinated position, so rotating your thumb out even more so that your hand is like facing out to the side. That is done by the long head of the biceps. So that's, that's a, an example, but it, you know, that's talking about different heads of a muscle. There's also different regions within the same head. So Another thing that has been proven um, is, let's say you're you're doing bicep curls while standing up, and if you're using a a straight bar or a preacher bar, doing curls in that position, that is going to mostly work the upper or superior region of the biceps. Now, the whole thing will be activated, right? It's not exclusive, but it will work the uh, upper portion more than the lower. Whereas if you put an angle of, it's because you're, you're making it so that the 90 degree point of maximum resistance, so the, the point where the muscle is feeling the most load is when it is more contracted than not. Right? It's towards the top of the range of motion. Now, let's say if you were to, I'm trying to visualize this, if you were to have a flat bench in front of you, and then you were to lay your arm so the back of your upper arm is on that bench, and then you put a dumbbell in your hand, and your forearm and elbow are hanging off the edge of the bench. In that position, maximum resistance is when the bicep is fully extended, and it's when your elbow is straight. In that position, you are working the lower region of the biceps more than the upper Right. And there's various different positions you can use to to work the biceps at its point of maximum extension. But that that's an example of a, a differentiator. That's an interesting one, since uh, another thing that's been uh, popping up a lot lately is uh, and inspired by some research that came out about uh, birds building muscle from just having basically a weight on their wing, just at a stretch point and just that stretch initiating a hypertrophic response. And, um, what's of course been interesting is that that seems to be true for many muscle groups, but not all muscle groups. Um, but to that point, just being in that stretch position, which is what you just described for that second bicep exercise, uh, it, it would make sense that, that would act differently than if you're, when you're stretching essentially around the elbow joint versus stretching around the shoulder joint at the other end of the bicep and uh, and but what's interesting is even people when people who recommend different those different exercises they aren't recommending them with the kind of mm, for lack of a better term understanding that you just 
laid it out with about why these things are doing what they're doing and what the effect could be, which would give people an ability to think through what they're trying to accomplish. And of course, there is going to be some genetic variation about whether, you know, just if you're doing something in a stretch position to in, like that example of the bicep, whether that is going to demonstrably or dramatically change the shape of your bicep because there, there's going to be different things that might have, might come into play. But it leads me to the second question I wanted to ask. Given that human beings really like you know, cookie cutter, paint by number, just tell me what to do and then I'll just do it more than they like to try to figure it out on their own. How do you manage that as you're getting people to think about these different exercises to do for different reasons and different regions, if you will, um, of a muscle group? Yeah, I always emphasize the importance of understanding the why and the how and not just the what. And that is probably one of my, you know, Mount Rushmore top, top four things that I, I emphasize because once you understand the, the fundamentals, right, then you don't have to just trust what some influencer says is true. You can actually analyze exactly what they're saying. What are the principles behind it? Does this make sense or does it not? So yes, I mean, there's a lot of people who just want to go straight to the what, but if you don't understand the why and the how, you're not going to be able to perform the what as effectively as you can. And you're definitely not going to be able to personalize it, right? Mm. Because there's, like you said, there's so much variability and cookie cutter workouts, they, they are far from optimal. You have to be able to adjust and, and customize based off of your own body, you know, what what you're feeling, what your actual needs are. And so that's impossible unless you really understand, you know, the fundamentals behind it. So exactly what the muscle is doing, you know, how, okay, what's its origin and assertion? What, what movements can it perform? What range of the movement is being worked here? And uh, you can go far, far deeper than that, obviously, but understanding just those few basic principles of, the underlying anatomy, the movements that it performs, then even with just that, you can you can analyze any exercise and, and really get a good feel for exactly what it's going to work and why. And let's take a deadlift, for example. Deadlift is a very complex exercise, right? It involves virtually the entire body. But if you just say, okay, I'm going to go do a deadlift because somebody said it's going to work this, this, and this, you're missing out on so much because there's so many different variations of the deadlift, right? Oh, I can do it with my knees a little stiffer rather than bending down all the way, or I can do it with my feet spread a little wider. And if you understand the underlying anatomy behind the movement, you know exactly what each of these variations will do to the various muscles being worked. So let's say, I mean, you have a, a hamstring strain, right? You want to be able to do a deadlift still. You say, okay, I'm going to choose a deadlift variation that takes load off the hamstrings, right? And emphasizes other areas of the muscle. So yeah, absolutely essential to understand the, the underlying why behind the exercise. It is interesting. I think that there's there may be one other benefit that just occurred to me um, that if you un have this understanding and it may sound complex, but it's not a, like the example you gave on the bicep of just 
what you experience with supination. Um, once you sort of just get that, it's not rocket science. And so one of the things I appreciate, pardon me, hiccups, I appreciate about what you're doing is um, sharing the information this way where it's just screamingly obvious or simple to understand without having to have a master's degree in anatomy, for example. Um, and but so it raises a question that, that or something that I'd love you to talk about, which is a term that people use with and rarely define it. Um, which is the uh, mind-muscle connection. And they want you to have a good mind-muscle connection when you're lifting. And it occurs to me that if you don't have some of this information that you just described, it's hard to have that. So let's start with your definition of that and how that applies once you have some understanding of the different ways you can impact a muscle with different exercises, different angles, et cetera. That's extremely, an extremely powerful concept. Um, so I, I was actually a, a neuroscience major. Uh, that was my, my undergrad uh, degree. And so, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by how the brain interacts with the muscles and, and how you can influence various outcomes uh, by, so I guess my definition of the mind-muscle connection, mind-body connection would be just instead of going through the motion kind of rotely being able to very intently focus on a specific outcome of that exercise. So why am I doing this? Okay. I want to actually improve you know, this specific region of a muscle or, or, you know, whatever the outcome is. And then, you know, one actually really, a, a really good example of this is studies have shown that if you actually, if you touch a muscle region during an exercise, you can actually increase the relative amount of engagement of that specific region, right? So let's say, um, you know, you're doing a, a chest fly, right? And you want to try and emphasize the inner region of the fibers. You can actually, if I'm, if I'm working, if I'm doing the fly with my right hand, on a cable machine or something, I could take my left hand and actually touch the region of the muscle that I want to, to emphasize, and it will increase the amount of relative engagement in that area. Sounds crazy? It's been proven. Like the, the, the power of the mind is, is really unbelievable, and, and science is really just kind of breaking you know, the surface of, of what this can achieve. That's an interesting one. Um, so just getting that proprioceptive feedback, or it's actually more than proprioceptive feedback, that kinesthetic feedback is intriguing for to me for two reasons. One, I see that with runners where they often don't, they don't have that kinesthetic awareness. They're a proprioceptive awareness. They don't know where their body is in space. And there are, and it's trickier to, you know, put your hand on a, the appropriate part of your body if you're running. But the, yeah. but, but, one of the things that we're trying to do with people, in fact, one of the things that we're doing with our product is giving people more sensory input, more feedback, which can change motor patterns pretty effortlessly as a result of that. But I'm also thinking of the number of people who just, they don't know what their body is doing or they can't feel what their body is doing because they haven't used certain parts in so long, their brain has sort of shut down. So it's an interesting thing, just pondering, you know, ways that we could improve learning new movements um, just by adding that kinesthetic feedback. And this, the second thing that made me think of 
So I had shoulder surgery, uh, let's call it eight weeks ago, something like that. And so when, and, uh, and bicep surgery as well, um, thanks to being a, an older former gymnast, um, like way older, way former, but regardless, um, it's interesting. So when I'm lifting to get that bicep working again with my left arm, what I've been paying attention to is paying attention to the muscle, paying attention to the bicep and contracting the muscle as a way of initiating the movement instead of just doing the movement. And that's another component to, you know, in my mind for mind muscle connection is like that kind of attentiveness. Now, some people, again, may not be able to feel that and would need to get that extra um, kinesthetic feedback, just feeling something to see if it's working. In fact, this just made me think of this one. Um, Dr. Irene Davis, when people come into her lab with some sort of running injury, one of the first things she does for almost everybody is she pokes, takes her finger and pokes their gluteus maximus, pokes them in the butt. I had to say gluteus max first, otherwise poking me in the butt sounds like it could be a very different thing than what she does. Um, and basically says, you know, squeeze your butt so you can feel that you're getting resistance to my pushing in that muscle. And many people can't do it. Or more accurately, they can't do it if you're, they're asked to just, you know, flex their butt independently. Then she pokes them and says, now try. And even then, many people are able to do better, but they still don't know how to activate that muscle yet. And they're getting, but getting more feedback, eventually they figured out and then it has to become internalized. So that it's just a fascinating thing about how our, to your point, how our brain either can help with making these movements and be beneficial or just just tuned out and you got to wake it up somehow. Yeah. You know, the brain is very plastic. This is, it's called meaning it can adapt and change very quickly, very easily, far more so than any other organ in the body. And, uh, it's, it's ability to hone in on specific muscles and even specific regions of a muscle is, is incredible, but not, not necessarily naturally. Like you said, especially if it hasn't been trained, hasn't been, uh, very intentionally grown, but once you, it doesn't take a whole lot to get there though. Like, you know, again, once you understand what muscles are involved and how, like, for example, if I'm doing a, a front raise right, where I, I mean, should I explain what a front raise is? Yeah, or? Sure. Have some fun. See how well you can do on this one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So let's say doing it with a cable machine, you have the cable set fairly low and it's just one arm. You have the arm neutral. So hanging down by your side with the elbow straight, holding the cable handle in your hand and then you slowly flex your shoulder forward you know people will say extend your shoulder but that's actually the opposite of shoulder flexion oh yeah right so, anyway moving the shoulder forward and up and then back down and there are three different primary muscles that perform that movement there's the anterior deltoid or front delt there is the pectoralis major the chest and there's also the biceps and the biceps cross the front of the shoulder. So they're performing that movement as well. And when I'm doing it, I, I can focus in on one of those three more than the other, just by you know using that mind muscle connection. Like, okay. I want to, I want to work my, my front delt with this exercise and it, 
my front delt worked far more than the other two muscles. Yet, if I wanted to work my biceps with that exercise, I could do that as well. So, yeah, there's there's really limitless potential to how you can leverage mind body connection. Yeah, the focus thing is fascinating. Again, since I'm recovering from surgery, when I'm doing things like um, a front raise or lateral raises or um, or scaption raises, whatever, it's as a former gymnast, when I was doing those, I was focusing entirely on all those muscles in the front because that's a really important motion for gymnastics. Um, now I'm working, thinking about all the muscles on the back because I've got to get my shoulder like back in the right place and staying there. And it's so fascinating for me, like literally 50 years after the you know first time I did one of these exercises to be paying attention to the quote wrong side of my body to initiate that movement. And it's, um, it, it took me a while to even realize that's what I wanted to do because I had so much in my brain of doing it the way I had done it for you know well over a decade. Um, and it's 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 a riot that you can get initiate and perform the same movement and have the impact be completely different muscles, which is it, it makes your brain hurt if you think about it too hard. It does. And you actually you touched on one of the things. Uh, that I, I also hit on a lot is the the shoulder imbalances that are so frequent with resistance training because the vast majority of people's focus is all in and forward, right? It's, it's the chest, it's the biceps, it's the front delt, everything that pulls your shoulders in, you know, it pulls them forward and rotates them in. And then what happens eventually? Well, that closes off what's called the subacromial space. And that's where your rotator cuff tendons, you know, pass through. And so it ends up grinding your rotator cuff against the bone. And then you get the impingements, the tears, the labral tears, the bicep tendon tears, all of that. So it's, you know, absolutely essential for people to work just as much the external rotators and the retractors of the shoulder. But most people, most people don't do any external rotation specific exercises. Um, so that's something I hit on a lot. Well, there were two thoughts that I had about that. One just fell out of my brain entirely. So I'll go on to the second one. Um, it, it, as I've been doing, especially all the shoulder stuff, um, it occurs to me that a lot of sports that we encourage our children to get into. And as a child, I was into, um, we're not, Oh, I know what it was. Anyway, we're not at that time, even strong enough to be doing any of those things properly. Like when I was a, a you know, 12 year old gymnast, I literally didn't have the kind of strength in my back, those external rotators, those retractors to keep my shoulders in the right place while I was doing all those other things. I mean, it was just not even possible. And it wasn't until, you know, well past my career that I, my body was in a place where I could actually develop that kind of strength. And so I've just been pondering lately how often we get kids involved in sports that they're just physically not ready for unless they have perfect technique, which is really, really rare because that requires perfect coaching as well. Um, And the other thought that went along with that before I lose it for the third time is one of the reasons we're so focused on all those things in the front. And I wish I could remember the name of the guy who did it. He's a psychologist who's written a bunch of books about how the literal construction of our perceptual mechanism impacts things we do. In other words, we have eyes in the front of our head. 
So we're very attentive to the things that we can see in a mirror or you can see when we look down. Um, we don't have eyes in the back of our head, so we don't pay attention to that. And it's a similar thing with running. People don't understand that if you don't overstride, that doesn't mean your gait is somehow magically shorter. It just means that you're putting your foot down in front of you and your gait is extending behind you. Your legs extending behind you differently than having your leg extending in front of you. And then it just barely doesn't go behind you. But, you know, because we can't see those things, it's really hard for most people to then make these <clears throat> changes that they, again, just, you know, simply can't see without eyes behind them. Yeah, and that's that's a prevalent concept in in weightlifting as well. I mean, you you perform a deadlift, for example, you think you're doing everything perfect, but you don't you don't see yourself right from the side or from the back, and so that is one of those areas where having a coach, uh, someone who knows what they're doing, and, and can walk you through those things you can't see, it can be really important. I was really, it was a moment of great pleasure for me when I was working with a sprinting coach who was talking about, and this is remotely, he was in the UK and he was talking about how, you know, for the exercise, we we're going to do the importance of being able to hip hinge, being able to, to, to bend the hips the right way, keeping your back flat, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to get into what a hip hinge is. Um, and he spent like an hour talking to me about this and said, so send me some videos of, you know, you hip hinging. So I sent him the videos and he just called me back and went, all right, well, you don't need any hope for that. So I was very happy about about that one because it's one of those things where you can't see it at all it has to be you know, either you're looking on video or you're feeling it because even if you have a mirror to the side just looking to the side is going to mess up what you're doing uh, for most people so it's it's a fascinating one um do we leave anything out of your i mean we did a we did our mountain rushmore but maybe there's a couple other things that popped into your brain of like if i could make people stop doing this forever that would make me happy yeah, there was a, a few that I thought of as we were talking, you know, a couple of them already went out the other side. But one is uh, people are way too focused on how much weight they are lifting. And honestly, I haven't tracked like what my one rep max is or, or anything of the sort for a very, very long time. I, I don't really care how much weight I can bench. It kind of harkens back to that, that mind muscle connection. I, I know when I'm lifting a weight, if it is enough to trigger the various type of benefits that I want, if it's not, I just make adjustments. But if you're too focused on the amount of weight, then form inevitably suffers, right? And it, it can be very, very small you know, um, differences in form that can have just drastic impacts, you know, with a, with a bench press, for example, if what you are focused on is getting the right contraction in the right areas, then you'll use perfect form throughout. If you are focused on just moving a specific amount of weight, then instead of keeping your shoulders retracted, you'll push them forward instead of, you know, moving both sides evenly, you'll start rocking your shoulders side to side, trying to get a little leverage here, leverage there to kind of get that weight up there. And that is so dangerous uh, and inevitably you know, will lead to, to injuries. Imbalances, first of all, because one of the reasons you have to rock side to side is because one of your sides is stronger than the other, right? And so when you do that rocking motion, you're not 
you're not balancing out the strength, right? And so you're just worsening that discrepancy and uh, all sorts of different, you know, injuries and, and imbalances will occur. So I, unless you are like a professional or, or a competitive power lifter, where that is your focus, don't be too concerned about how much weight you're using. Yeah. Be more concerned about whether you're getting the contraction done the right way. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> the, the, it, it's an interesting thing to get over the self-consciousness of using light weights. Um, and, and admittedly, I mean, let's, you know, not, let's not be coy about this. If you're in a gym and you're doing whatever exercise with something, basically, if you're, if you're taking the weights that some woman who's half your size is using and removing some plates, you know, that's a hard thing to, to do, <laughs> um, even if it's the right thing to do. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, I mean, I will say it was it was fun for me when I was um, pretty much at my strongest when I was in my mid 40s as a sprinter. And I was doing a lot of deadlifting and I got really good at it. And I'd go into some gyms and there'd be some really big guy who had like, you know, 350 on the bar. And then he'd see that I was going to get on the platform and lift next. And he starts to try and reach for the plates. I went, no, no, I'll be adding some. (laughs) I will admit, I really enjoyed that. And the fact that now I've got to compromise spine, not from that reason, you know, that that a I, I can't really deadlift or it's not smart for me. Um, I can do single leg stuff. So I'm using even less weight and then using even less weight and really focusing on whether it's working. Um, it, it has taken me years to be okay with that when I'm in a public gym and, and, and more accurately to be okay with the fact that I wish I was lifting some huge amount of weight instead. And, um, that's just the thought in my head. And then I just keep doing what I'm doing and going, yep, it'll be really fun, but, um, that'd be really stupid too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're you're right. It's just, just kind of got to put away the ego, and yeah, uh, you're, not gonna, you're never going to put it away. You just have to pat it on the head and say, yeah, I, <laughs> I did for a while. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. We're just not there. It's kind of like when I got back into sprinting. Mm-hmm. It took me two years to learn that when my brain says, "Let's just do one more," that was the time to stop, because for the first two years, that you know, let's do one more is what got me injured. And it's a similar thing to what we're just, what we're talking about here. It's like it's so easy to. Because, you know, again, we like to have that cookie cutter thing. The weight is a is a definitive thing. It's 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 measurable. It's it's uncontrovertible. It's other words that I can't think of that, you know, you wouldn't find the on the SATs um, that were simpler words that just weren't coming into my head. Um, but, you know, you know how much weight it is, how much you're feeling, getting used to doing things by feeling is such a radical idea, especially when we're such a goal oriented group of human beings over here um yeah, yeah. it makes sense that we'd be obsessed with the number instead of the effect and the feeling and the way you're doing it well there is a there is a technique you can use um that can uh you know mollify the ego and still prevent injury and that is to use the the eccentric again some people say you know, eccentric. I think that's just reminds me too much of eccentric people. So eccentric phases of uh, the exercise for one, eccentric contractions are better for you. Yeah, actually they, they, they trigger strength and hypertrophic gains more at a, at a greater and faster rate than concentric. Now, I guess I should explain eccentric is the negative phase. So if we're, if we're talking about a bench press, Concentric is pushing it up. Eccentric is 
it coming back down. So it pushing you basically. So that negative, most people are really only focused on the pushing out phase, right? That's what they're trying to do. But the eccentric, the negative is actually far better for you. And you're stronger in an eccentric contraction. You can lift more weight that way. You can put out more power and it is much less likely to result in injury. Um, one reason just is, you know, how the muscles themselves are put together. But the other is, again, using the bench press as an example, the concentric phase, you're really focused on getting that up, right? That's the goal. I got to push this thing up and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there. I'm going to, you know, arch my back, et cetera, whatever it is. Whereas on the way back down, like, you know, you're not trying to move it somewhere. It's moving you, right? You're just kind of resisting it as it comes back down. And so, like, if you were to load up a ton of weight on a bench press and do only the eccentric phase, you know you're not going to be pushing that back up. So you're not going to arch your back. You're not going to twist your shoulders, right? You're just kind of resisting it as much as you can as it comes down. And, and so you'll, you'll maintain proper form. So that is a way you, you can put a lot more weight on, on whatever exercise you're doing and not sacrifice form and not risk injury is just focusing on, and again, better results, just focusing on the eccentric uh, contractions. Well, I want to ask you a question about that. Something I've been thinking about lately. For most people, they think of the eccentric as literally just, let's call it for the, in the bench press, the lowering phase. And they for them, an eccentric is about just slowing down the lowering Whereas the real value for the eccentric, like you described, is that you can handle more weight. Let's say you can push, I'm making up a number, you can push 150 pounds, but if someone put, and I'm totally making up numbers, they suddenly put 300 pounds on the bar, you could resist that coming down before it crushes you. You could resist it pretty extent, pretty significantly. I have the idea, and again, I'm dying to hear what you think, that the way most people think of the eccentric, again, just the slower lowering, is really just increasing time under tension because it's not really taking advantage of the overload phenomenon or the overload possibility in eccentric. But of course, to do to do just the overload part, there's certain exercise where that's really easy, pull up, dip, et cetera, where you could, you know, step on a bench to get to the right, uh, to the, uh, for a pull up, step on a bench to get to the point where you've got your chin over the bar and slowly lower yourself. Dip, same thing, mm-hmm. step on a bench till you're, you know, fully extended and then slowly lower yourself. Not so easy, especially on your own, for other exercises, unless you have some electronic or electric equipment, electric motor equipment, like a tonal gym or whatever, where you can program it for that. So what's your take on an overloaded eccentric, like a legit eccentric where you're doing everything you can to not to resist the, that motion versus just, you know, slower slash time under tension? Yeah. So it depends on if you have a partner or not, but let's say you don't have a partner. The key is unilateral exercises, right? Or one side at a time. So let's take the, um, the bench press. Uh, in this case, you will, you will do a dumbbell press then. And let's say in a dumbbell press, the most you could press would be, you know, 80 pound dumbbells. Well, then I'm going to get a hundred pound dumbbell. And I'm going to start with it on my chest with both hands on the handle. I'm going to press up with both hands. And then I'm going to let go with one and just resist it coming back down with the other. 
right? And then again, I'd push up with both hands and then you kind of have to shift it to one side before you let it drop down. But I, I, I do this frequently on my own. Um, and you can do this with virtually any exercise, any muscle group. You just have, even if you're on your own, you just have to do it one side at a time. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, bicep curl, same thing. If the most you could do in a curl is 40 pounds, then take a 50 pound dumbbell, use both hands to curl it up, let go with one, resist it as much as you can on the way down. Yeah, let's be clear, especially on the bench press example, when you use both hands to push it up, make sure you only let go of one hand and not two, because that would turn into a whole different thing that we are not responsible for. That is true. Yes. <laughs> uh, I can imagine. I've, I've seen some crazy things in the gym, and I can imagine someone thinking exercise so that's a, a clever way of doing it. you know the 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 bilateral on the way up and the unilateral on the way down which will seem again awfully weird uh to most human beings but if you try it it's fascinating um people i i think the first time someone does a real negative where they're just seeing how much weight they can load up to then just slow down how much it's going down they're stunned at the difference between how much they can push versus how much they can resist and um, and to, to be fair, um, if you really do an eccentric workout, you'll be I think the technical term, please correct me, I'm not a medical professional, uh, is sore as shit. Did I get that right? You, you got that perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it, it, it comes back to uh, variety and how, you know, so many factors determine how a muscle is worked. So if you haven't focused on eccentric workouts then yeah the first time you do that you <laughs> you are going to be insanely sore um but you know and, and i said earlier eccentrics are, are better for you in general you know you, you you can lift more and they trigger size and strength gains better and they prevent injury better but even then you don't want to do eccentrics exclusively right variety is key so you still want to be working uh working in you know concentric uh contractions isometric even isometric is when you're pushing or pulling but there's no movement right it, it stays in the same spot so to give people an example of uh for an eccentric that they may not even have thought of if you've done any hiking where you're going uphill in a big way um, you know, you can get to the top of the hill or the mountain, whatever, wherever you happen to be. And, you know, you feel like you've worked out, you feel pretty good. But then that coming back down is where you end up, mm -hmm. your quads are on fire for the next day. It's like, because, and that is the eccentric. You're just trying to slow down as you're bending your legs, you know, slow down how you're going down is a better way of putting it. And that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a good one. Yep. Anything we missed from uh, things that we wish people would never do again? And FYI, I got to tell you, um, there's a time where I was sitting at the uh, on the path of the Boulder Creek um, with Danny Dreyer from Chi Running, and Danny is a great running coach. And we were just watching people running by and simultaneously just going, oh, God, you know, just seeing so many things that people are doing that they'd be having much more fun, let alone being more effective and efficient if they weren't doing those form things, having those form problems that we were seeing them having. Um, but we elected not to run up and tackle people and try and tell them what to do instead. But anyway, in, in the time we have left, any last, um, here, here's one that you really, that really gets your goat. 
Yeah, I mean, most of the rest would kind of be movement specific, right? With, with specific lifts, specific movements, there's always things that people do wrong or little tweaks they can make to emphasize different areas. I think probably the last thing that uh, I can think of right now that is a big pet peeve and also a significant detriment to people's success is swinging weights using momentum right and this comes back to the ego people want to be you know look like they're using more weight so let's say with the bicep curl they'll get a big dumbbell and then rock their back swing the weight as they bring it up and then they got this kind of back and forth swinging motion going on Uh, that's doing nothing for your biceps right so and I guess I, I should say there is there are areas at an advanced level where you actually do want to use momentum in very controlled, very specific ways, but that's that's pretty advanced. A general rule of thumb is don't don't use momentum, don't swing weights, you know, use slow controlled contractions, focus on, you know, that mind-body connection, exactly what it is you're trying to achieve with that specific exercise and uh, it'll be far more beneficial for you, even though you'll be using less weight than you otherwise would. That is a good one. Well, on that note, first of all, thanks. Let's wrap this up. Do me a favor once again, um, let people know how they can track you down and find out more about what you're doing so they can do more things for themselves that will be beneficial as they're continuing to live a human life. Yeah. So, uh, dr-gains.com that's with an s not a z d-a-i-n-s and i have i have a weekly newsletter that uh i send out just it's called fitness tip friday just a brief email where i I send out the tip of the week um something that is immediately applicable uh for your life something has to do with health or fitness and uh, you can find that on my website and then the youtube channel is dr gains and uh, on all other socials, Michael Kamalu, K-A-M-A-L-U. Perfect. Well, Michael, um, A, absolute pleasure. Um, B, really looking forward to what's next. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what people uh, experience when they track you down and find some of the things you're doing and get involved with your work, which, again, I'm, I'm uh, just really impressed by because there are so few people who, in almost any physical activity, who take the time and effort or have the inclination to really listen and look at what people have been saying and doing that's just been passed down and passed down and go, yeah, hold on for one sec. Um, there may be another angle to this, pun intended, or or a different way of thinking of this, or maybe you're just flat out wrong. Um, and so, but it's just the way people have been doing it. So I, I appreciate what you've been doing. Anyway, for everybody else, thank you for being here. Go, go check out Michael at uh, dr-gains.com and Dr. Gaines, et cetera, et cetera. He gave you all that stuff. I don't need to tell you again. And for on our end, uh, don't forget, go over to www.jointhemovementmovement.com, find previous episodes, find all the ways you can engage with us on social media, et cetera. And as always, if you have a request or suggestion, someone you think should be on the show, ideally, it would be great if I could finally get someone who thinks I have a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome and we can duke it out and see what happens um, when I just ask questions like, really, where's your proof? Um, but uh, either way, you can drop me an email at move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovementmovement.com. And until then, Uh, Go out, have fun, and live life feet first.